world overcomers and family. Welcome, 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 welcome to our Wednesday night online worship experience. I hope that you're in the chat. I hope that you are participating during worship. I am super excited. Uh, in the chat, let me know uh, if you've got perfect attendance so far. I started a sermon series last week. Uh, probably ruffled some feathers, probably stepped on some toes. Let me know in the chat if you were here last week. Come on, if you were here last week, give me a two for two, okay? If you were here last week in the chat, just give me a two for two, okay? We're going to do a four-week sermon series on breaking the stronghold of poverty, breaking the curse of poverty, and generating unprecedented wealth, okay? We want to... Uh, we want to break the curse of poverty, and we want to create unprecedented wealth. So maybe you're here and you're thinking to yourself, is this prosperity gospel? Like, what, what do you, what, why do you want people to be wealthy? Why does this matter? Well, let me first get into the fact that there's a common uh, misconception, I would say, that Jesus, A, was poor himself, uh, or that Jesus uh, elevates poverty as more holy than those who are wealthy. I, I would actually say to you uh, a couple of things. Numero uno. Uh, the first one that I would say is that the disciples are not poor. That the disciples are actually wealthy. Uh, and that one of the reasons that Peter is able to follow Jesus for consistent or consecutive years of his life is not just because Peter was an employee, but that Peter owned fishing vessels, owned fishing boats. One of the last times I was in Israel, uh, we were obviously touring the entire country, and one of the things that our tour guide uh, showed us or highlighted to us is that there are no like oak trees or pine trees or cedar trees as you are in Israel. That actually there's olive trees everywhere and you can't use olive wood as a lumber. That even if you read in the Old Testament that as Solomon is building his palace and building the temple, he has to import lumber. Uh, there's actually a, a phrase all throughout the Psalms. It's cedars of Lebanon. Well, Lebanon is a bordering country, and, and the cedars are actually not in Israel. They're in Lebanon, which means this, wood, lumber, like that is a scarce commodity. And if somebody had it, it meant they got it at great expense. That wood, just good old lumber, the kind of wood that you would need to build a boat, to build a fishing vessel, would cost you a lot of money. And so when we get to the New Testament and we see this man named Peter who owns fishing boats, this is not a poor guy. This would actually have been an upper middle class guy, let alone the other disciple, not the other, one of the other disciples. His name is Matthew. And Matthew is a tax collector. Just a short survey of the Gospels, and you'll realize that tax collectors are <laughs> grotesquely wealthy. The other tax collector that we have, like, actual data about their uh, wealth is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is so wealthy that he says, if I've bribed any, not if I've bribed, if I've, uh, if I've been unjust in my treatment to anyone or extorted them for more taxes as I've been collecting taxes for the Romans, I'll give them back four times what I've taken. So here we have Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector of extravagant wealth, which means wealthy people wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus never says to Peter, go sell all those fishing boats. Actually, what happens when Jesus dies and is resurrected, what's Peter doing? He's back fishing. He still has his boats. I would contend that Peter's fishing business sustained the ministry of Jesus. We also know from Luke chapter 8 that the ministry of Jesus is sustained by wealthy women. And so the ministry of Jesus is not anti-wealth. 
The ministry of Jesus is anti-greed. The issue that Jesus and God has with money is the hoarding of money, is the injustice of building wealth on the backs of others. God never has an issue with wealth. He doesn't have a problem with people managing and stewarding great amounts of wealth. But stewardship and management and hoarding are vastly different. And we are going to get into that tonight. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe this guy is doing a whole four-week sermon series on how to build wealth. Well, I'm sorry, but uh, if I were still in the same situation that my parents birthed me into, which was I didn't have resources to be educated, didn't have resources to be self-sufficient, I'm sorry, but that's not the kingdom of God manifest on earth that I would subscribe to. I have absolutely no interest in a gospel that is not only going to free me from sin, but the effects of sin. And one of the effects of sin is sickness. One of the effects of sin is, uh, is poverty. Adam and Eve were not impoverished in the Garden of Eden. Actually, the gospel, the, the Bible outlines a, a, a world that looks like abundance. More than enough. More than enough. I want you to like soak that in. That the Garden of Eden was more than enough. That there were more trees than necessary for two humans. That there were four rivers that watered the garden. All for two humans. That God gave them more than enough. Friends, what is wealth? Wealth is having more than enough. And I think that God has absolutely no problem with wealth. Let's stay on Jesus for a little bit. Because Jesus dies in a, uh, goes to the cross, I would say, in garments uh, that I don't think would, be, would have been poor man's clothes. N number one, let, let's talk about it's a purple linen garment. And it's in one piece with no hem. Let, let's talk about like this is the proof from the text. Number one, purple dye was the most expensive dye that you could get in that day. It's why it was reserved for royalty. Actually, if you fast forward in the New Testament, you'll see a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia is a purple dye dealer. She's actually, a lot of scholars believe, the woman who founded the church at Philippi. This woman who gives her life to Jesus in the book of Acts is a woman of great means and great wealth. Therefore, we know that the robe that Jesus is wearing, just by the color alone, a, a person who dealt in purple dye made a lot of money because the dye alone was worth great wealth. So Jesus it goes to the cross in a robe where the dye alone costs a lot of money. Second, it's in one piece. Uh, the, the, the value of the item is so costly that Roman soldiers cast lots for who should take it. Why would they be casting lots for an article of clothing that is not worth a lot of money? It's not as if they were worshipers of Jesus. It's not as if they were fans of Jesus. It's not as if they were so fanatical in their uh, adoration of Jesus that they just had to have the clothes. I would see if it was Mary Magdalene or some of the other women who went and grabbed his clothes and the clothes had sentimental value. Or if Mary, his mother, grabbed the clothes because it smelled like her son. But no, heathen Roman soldiers cast lots because they wanted the clothing. Because the clothes were expensive. This idea that Jesus was some broke hippie with no money is absolutely ludicrous and not founded in any of the evidence that we have laid out for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Last thing that I'll say about Jesus and wealth is that Jesus is actually uh, preaching to the multitude and the disciples come to him with a problem. Hey, the people are hungry. You should send them away. Jesus says, how about you figure out a solution? 
Then they say, well, get this. Should we go buy food for the crowd? Let that sink in. Should we go buy food for this crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children? And Jesus says no, and he takes the two fish and the five loaves, and he multiplies the food and miraculously provides. But the disciples were ready to go buy food for, could have been, upwards of 10,000 people, maybe even 15,000 people. Would poor, would a group of poor, 12 impoverished men have thought to themselves, let's just go buy food? No. I don't think so, friends. I think that these men who are following Jesus and the women that we're also following are people of great means and wealth. I think these are people for whom there had to have been such a substantial amount of money for Judas to steal from the money bag. So this idea that Jesus is opposed to wealthy people, he is at the homes of centurions. He's at fancy banquets. He is fraternizing with people who are wealthy. However, fraternizing with wealthy people don't stroke his ego or cause Jesus to find validation in that. There's no affirmation for Jesus in fraternizing with people of great wealth. He could fraternize with someone of great wealth in one minute and then go talk to a leper who was an outcast of society in the next minute. And every single Christian listening to this should have the ability to rub shoulders with those people who are wealthy, who are the movers and shakers of society, and never turn their nose down at somebody who may be holding a homeless sign or need something from you or the people who are maids in your homes or the people who you think are less than actually someone for whom their identity, validation, and affirmation does not come from wealth is not insecure when they are in the presence of those who have wealth and they are not prideful when they are in the presence of people who don't have wealth. People who follow Jesus treat people of wealth and of no wealth the same way Jesus treated people, with dignity, with honor, and respect. Because behind all that wealth could be a broken individual who needs the gospel. And behind all of the, of the tattered clothing and the impoverished mindset and the impoverished experience could be the heart of gold that pleases God. At no point do we get affirmation from either hobnobbing with wealthy people going out to brunch with those people in our cities who are the elite, and we do not get so far removed from the homeless and the hurting and the broken and the impoverished that we don't have compassion towards people. And this is the great tension of the ministry of Jesus, is that Jesus could be with a leper and touch the leper, but can also be at Zacchaeus' house and feel totally comfortable. Do you feel comfortable being around poor people? And do you feel equally comfortable being around wealthy people? Because friends, I know a lot of people who will go to a homeless shelter, go to a soup kitchen, but they will never, ever, ever turn their attention to the wealthy person who is just as broken. And I know people who will influence <laughs> those people in society who, who have great homes and great wealth and great cars, but will never, ever, ever volunteer at a soup kitchen. And I'm saying this is not an either or, this is a both and. That the gospel of Jesus would actually dictate that if I have made some kind of delineation between poor people and wealthy people, I've missed the point that God has never made the Bible about wealth or about the lack thereof. He has made it about his glory, his kingdom, his message, his work in the world. God does not care if you are poor, if you are broke. He cares that you have hope, that you live the abundant life that he wants you to live. And I have found that the way to live the abundant life is to have more than enough. And I will never idolize wealth by, in, by, by relating to people who have it. And I will never idolize poverty as if poverty makes people more holy. I know wealthy people who have a heart of gold, and I know homeless people who are absolutely 
broken, not just mentally ill, but broken to the point that they have driven everyone in their life out of their life with bitterness and with rage and, and, the, and that their spirit is absolutely um, um, contrary to a heart of compassion and humility. So before we start putting labels and saying to be broke is to be good or to be wealthy is, is bad, we actually need to realize, no, it, wealth doesn't make me good or bad. The lack thereof doesn't make me good or bad or more delightful in God's sight or holy. Nope. It's actually the, my heart that matters and that everything in my life flows out of a place of humility. All right, let's talk about this. If this is helpful, let me know in the chat. If this is helpful, let me know in the chat. Tonight, we are going to outline the difference between purpose, gifting, and calling. Last week, we left off, and I said one of the underlying reasons that a lot of us are lazy is because we are bored. That the things that we have actually given our life to in terms of our work, our employment, our vocation, they don't capture our attention and our affections. They, they don't, they're not things that we would enjoy giving our life to. And so therefore, it's not that we're lazy. It's actually that laziness is a surface level symptomatic experience. And underneath that symptom is actually boredom. That if I, Manny Arango, had to have Pastor Josh Sissel and Pastor Johnny White's job at this church, Johnny White being the music director and Pastor Josh being the worship pastor, I would be very lazy because I would be unequipped, I'd be incompetent, I'm not gifted, I'm not called to do worship, I'm not, I don't have a music uh, gift. So yeah, I, I would definitely be frustrated. And for a lot of us, we have to ask the question, am I operating in my gift? Am I operating according to the purpose of God on my life? Am I operating in the realm of my calling? And it could be so that I'm lazy with what I'm doing because I'm not called to be doing it. So let's break down these words. First word I want to break down is purpose. First word I want to break down, purpose. Come on, if you're taking notes, you can write down the word purpose. Everybody in the chat right now, just go ahead and, and type the word purpose. You can do it in all caps, P-U-R-P-O-S-E. Purpose, purpose, purpose. Now, I may say something that's going to shock you. If you are someone who doesn't know their purpose, I'm going to tell you right now, no big deal. No big deal. There's so much pressure that we put on people to find their purpose, discover their purpose. And can I tell you something, friends? Every Christian has the same purpose. Uh-oh, this is controversial, but I think this is good theology. This is biblical. Every Christian has the same purpose. In every single Christian, there's three things that every single Christian is purposed to do. Purposed to do. Number one is glorify God. The very first purpose on every human, let alone every Christian, is to glorify God. Why are you here? Why did God put you here? Why were you born? Why did God knit you together in your mother's womb? So that you could glorify him. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You have been uniquely designed to reflect the glory of God. That when people see you, they actually see your good deeds, they see wealth, they see um, your marriage, they see your family, they see your singleness, they see whatever's happening in your life, and they immediately go, man, God's hand must be on that person's life because of their character, because of who they are, because of their wisdom, so our number one purpose in life is to glorify God. Colossians 3.17, it says this. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are called to glorify God. That is the purpose of every single Christian. Number two, I tell you, we, there's three things God has purposed us to do. Number two, the purpose of every single Christian 
is number one, to glorify God. Number second, to steward the treasures of life. To steward the treasures of life. I'll list a couple of treasures of life. Number one, your time is a treasure of life. Number two, your breath and energy is a treasure of life. Number three, your words is a treasure of life. Number four, your relationships is a treasure of life. Number five, your money is a treasure of life. Number six, your wisdom is a treasure of life. Your purpose on this earth is to steward the treasures of life. And number three, the purpose of every single Christian is to grow God's church, to grow the church of Jesus Christ, to grow the church, to glorify God, to steward the treasures of life, and to grow the church. That is the purpose of every single Christian. If you told me your purpose is to do anything else, I would tell you, no, your purpose is to, uh, is to glorify God, steward the treasures of life, and to grow God's church. That's your purpose. Every single believer, every single Christian is to do the same thing. So how does the missionary grow the church? The missionary grows the church by flying to a foreign country, meeting people, and getting converts for Christ. How does the person who never goes to a foreign country grow the church? By inviting their co-workers to church or by giving to the missions fund and that the church collects to send out missionaries. Whether you are the person funding the missions project or the person on the mission field yourself, you are growing God's church. How do you grow the church? By tithing and giving your offerings to a local church so that a teacher of God's word and a preacher of God's word doesn't have to be bivocational, but can dedicate their brain and their life and their call uh, and their um, gift to the church so that communication can go forward that would make somebody want to uh, be a part of God's church that you invited. We all do three things. We glorify God, we steward the churches of life, and we grow the church. Ladies and gentlemen, that is your purpose. All of this, I need to find my purpose. I need to discover my purpose. Sounds a lot like secular self-help talk. And in church circles, we make it seem like you are so unique and so different that there's a specific purpose that God has for you. Family, I would actually put that in a, I would, I would term that different. I think that when it comes to purpose, every single Christian has the same purpose. And that purpose can be broken down into three statements. Number one, you are purposed to glorify God. Whether you work at McDonald's, whether you work at Five Guys, whether you hold a microphone like I do on a stage, you are here to glorify God in your circle of influence. Number two, you are, you are purposed to steward the treasures of life. Number three, you are purposed to grow the church. That is your purpose. Now, let's talk about your gifting. Your gifting makes you unique. Your gifting is tied to your personality. Your gifting can be supernatural or natural. There are gifts of the spirit, but then there's just gifts that come completely natural. I have the gift of gab. I've got the gift to talk. I have a gift where I verbally process. So I, while I'm preaching, can be processing the conclusion of my message while I'm in the introduction. I have a gift. If I didn't have the spiritual gift of teaching and leading, I would still have the natural gift of talking. That's my gift. And the Bible says gifts come without repentance. When people begin to put pressure on people to know their purpose, I actually begin to ask a different question. Do you know your gifts? Do you know your gifts? Now, after a while, a gift should become a skill. A gift should become a skill. I've worked at communicating to the point that my communication gift is now a communication skill. How do I turn a gift into a skill? I perfect it and I deconstruct that gift. I know it in and out so that I can teach other people how to flow in that gift. The way that you know that it is now a skill and not a gift is that you can mentor people in that gifting. A gift has matured into a skill when you can do that gift with a different variety of multi-ethnic and multicultural people. When you can do it multi-generationally. 
if you are only gifted with a certain demographic of people, I would say that's not a skill yet. That's still a gift because there's a lid. There's a limit on the scalability of that gift. But a skill, a skill can be mass produced. A skill can be scaled. A skill can be taught. Skills can lead to mentorship. Last word, calling. What is a calling? A calling is based on three things. A calling is based on three things. Calling is based on season. So callings are not permanent, they are temporary. A calling is not permanent, it is temporary. I remember when God called me to a place, North Carolina, to a church, World Overcomers, and to a man, Pastor Andy Thompson. God called me to a place, North Carolina, a church, World Overcomers, and a man, Pastor Andy Thompson. So a calling is based on relationship, season, and assignment. Relationship, season, and assignment. So I have to now ask the question, what is God calling me? Who is God calling me to serve? What problem is God calling me to solve? And what season is God calling me to steward? I have to ask three questions. What person is God, or what people is God calling me to serve? What problem is God calling me to solve? The problem that I'm called to solve is my assignment. Assignment. The reason that it needs to be an assignment is because assignments have due dates. An assignment has a due date. I'm in school right now, and my professor gives assignments. And I can't just decide, you know what, I'm going to turn that assignment in when I feel like it. Or this assignment is going to last forever. No, I spent a season in North Carolina at World Overcomers with Pastor Andy. And when that season was over, I moved to Dallas, Texas. I moved to the next season because I got called. Called to Texas, called to Social Dallas, called to Pastor Robert and Taylor Madu. Called to what? A new place new church, new pastors, called. And I'll know when that is over because the assignment will be completed. What was my assignment here in North Carolina? I'll tell you exactly what my assignment was. It wasn't just do it till you feel like it's over. No, an assignment has to have a clear and specific end date. Here was my assignment. My assignment, I said this to Pastor Andy when I first took the job, I said, I will be your son's only youth pastor. I'm called to pastor your boys through high school. That's what I'm called to do. I'm familiar with PKs. They don't need two to three different youth pastors because the average youth pastor only lasts about a couple of months. They don't need a youth pastor for a couple of months and another youth pastor and another youth pastor and another youth pastor. So when I got here, his triplet boys were in eighth grade, and I said, you got me until these boys graduate. I will be here until they graduate. And what was my assignment? I wanted to make sure that by the time they graduated, they loved three things. They loved their parents, they loved the church, and they loved the Lord. That was my assignment for that season, that those triplet boys loved their parents because a lot of PKs begin to resent their parents. And I was always a voice of, you love your dad, your dad loves you, your mom loves you, your parents love you. Always a voice that told them, your parents love you, your parents love you, your parents love you. Why? Because that was my assignment. Number two, what was my assignment? For them to love the church. Some PKs hate the church because the church takes their parents from them. And so I was always like, come on, let, where are you volunteering? Where are you serving? I want you to love the church. You got to love the church. You got to love the local church. And then love the Lord. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to love God. I want you to love his word. I want you to love the things of God. That was my assignment. And so when those triplet boys graduated from high school, at their high school graduation, you know what I realized? This assignment is completed. Now, only Pastor Annie and First can grade me on that assignment, but the assignment got turned in. This is now completed. For a lot of us, you don't understand your assignment, so the season that you're in just lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. And you're bored because you're still working on the last season's assignment. You've got to know. Nope, when this is over, I'll know because I'll get bored. 
And boredom always creates laziness. Laziness actually creates sin. And sin, woo! David should have been out fighting in a war, in a battle. The Bible says when kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem, and that's when he saw Bathsheba. Because idle hands make for an opportunity for too much sin. Why are you idle? Once my assignment was done, it was almost like, I, you know, I would come to the office and I'd be like, man, there's just not a lot to do. Well, I don't, you know, I'm not picking up, you know, AJ and Robert and Kerwin from school. And man, I'm not teaching them how to do their devotions. And, oh man, what is there to do? Well, the assignment was completed. The assignment was completed. Now let's talk about seasons. How did I know that my season living in North Carolina was over? Well, my season is based on my giant. When I was living in North Carolina, I had a giant called infertility. And when, I, when, me and, when Tia gave birth to my son, my biological son, immediately I realized that we've just defeated this Goliath. And this giant marks this season of our life. Therefore, what's the next giant? And the next giant for us was national, global ministry. And so my pastors at the time, when me and Tia were struggling with infertility and we were doing IVF, we had pastors who had struggled with infertility and had done IVF. The next giant looked like national and international global ministry. So what happened? I began to, my heart began to be knit to Pastor Robert and Taylor Madu, who had what? Been doing global, international, and national platform ministry. So my mentor or my pastor matches the new Goliath that I'm trying to defeat. See, I can now, and, and, and okay, let me, let me help. Because my wealth is always attached to the assignment that's on my life. I can't fail in the assignment and think that God is going to open up the windows of heaven and bless me with material wealth. God has blessed me with material wealth because I've been able to focus on the assignment. Focus on the assignment. All right, I want to make sure I'm not getting lost here. How do I keep from getting bored? And why is that necessary? I keep from being bored by making sure that I'm working in my purpose, gifting, and calling. Why is that necessary? Because if I'm bored, I will be lazy. And if I'm lazy, I may find myself like David staring off at the rooftops, and I may find myself into some sin, and I may find myself in adultery like David in Bathsheba. See, I'm going to find some trouble because I'm too idle. And I'm idle because I'm bored. And I'm bored because I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And so we've got to understand purpose, gifting, calling, so that we can be on assignment. Get busy doing what God told you to do, okay? Now, when we talk about purpose, every Christian has the same, same purpose. Glorify God, steward the treasures of life, grow the church. When it comes to gifts, gifts is where it gets unique. Some of us have a gift of leadership. Others of us have a gift of administration. Others of us have a gift to direct. Others of us have a gift of organization. Some people have a gift of executive communication. Some of us have different gifts. Some people have artistic gifts, musical gifts. There's tons of different gifts. And the question now is, are you operating in your gift? Next, am I operating based on my calling? Well, my calling is based on a season. I know my season based on the Goliath. And I know the Goliath based on the mentor that God is providing so that I can beat that Goliath, okay? It's based on that relationship and it's based on the assignment. So three clues for my calling is the season, the relationship, and the assignment. When I prioritize God's purpose, when I operate in my gift, and when I'm obedient to my call, I want to say that again. When I prioritize God's purpose, when I operate 
in my gift. And when I answer slash am obedient to the call of God all my life for this season with these relationships solving this problem, a.k.a. assignment, that is when I am most positioned to produce wealth. Let me say that again. I want to make sure I'm saying this slow and clear. And then I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 49. Okay? I I want to make sure I'm saying this like slow and clear. When I've prioritized God's purpose, I care more about glorifying God than just gaining a bunch of money. Money's not an idol for me if I've prioritized glorifying God. I'm stewarding the treasures of life. That's next week's message. I'll tell you all about how to steward the treasures of life. And I'm growing the church. When I prioritize purpose, I want to outline what that means. Prioritizing purpose means I'm glorifying God, I'm stewarding the treasures of life, and I'm growing the church. When I prioritize purpose, when I operate in my gift, not try to live somebody else's life, not, you know, I don't have the gift to sing, but that's what I'm going to try to do. No, 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 no. When I operate in my gift, when I accept my gift, when I know myself, and I know how I am uniquely designed to flourish when I know my gift and operate in it and then answer the call, which is based on a season, a relationship, and an assignment. That is when I am most positioned to gain the most wealth of my life. That is when money begins to find you. Most of us do not have a money problem. You have a purpose problem. You have a gift problem. You have a calling problem. You have a purpose problem, which means you want to glorify you over glorifying God. You want to be famous instead of wanting to reflect the glory of God. You don't steward the churches of life well. You're not a good steward. You want to own instead of steward. And you're not about growing the church. You're about growing your brand, growing your Instagram following, growing yourself. You're self-oriented instead of God-oriented, which means you, have, you lack purpose. You don't operate in your gift because you're jealous or you're insecure. And then you neglected the call. You're in an outdated assignment, scared. You won't move in faith. And every time God tries to call you to do something new, you don't answer. If that is true, then I'm not going to be shocked when you are broke, frustrated, at a job you hate, not making enough money, can't provide for you and your kids because you have neglected purpose, neglected your gift, and neglected your call. You are most attractive to wealth when you prioritize purpose, operate in your gift, and answer God's call according to obedience. Now, I want to break Genesis chapter 49 down for you. Genesis chapter 49, and I'm going to take up the offering. I'm going to dismiss this for Wednesday night service. If this is helping somebody, go ahead and let me know in the chat. This is helping somebody. Genesis chapter 49, verse 27. Week 2 of this sermon series. I pray is helpful. Uh, Pray is helpful. Because I I definitely preached last week uh, and I wanted to like teach a little bit more this week. So Genesis chapter 49 verse 27. Uh, If you got it in the chat, just say got it. Okay, Genesis chapter 49 verse 27 says this. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. Type in the chat, devours. In the evening, he divides the plunder. Go ahead, type in the chat, devours. I mean, divides. In the morning, he devours. In the evening, he divides. In the morning, he devours. In the evening, he divides. In the morning, he devours. In the evening, he divides. This is this trend with a lot of millennials that I know. They are seeking to divide before they devour. So they're diversifying their skill set before they've devoured anything. And I would say, whoa, homie, 
before you go ahead and diversify, aka divide in the evening, how about you devour in the morning? What do I mean by devour? Master your craft. How about you get world class at one thing before you try to become an expert at five things? I know so many millennials, it's like, I go to your Instagram, you do lashes, you do waste management, you, you also manage a, a photographer down the street, you're a creative director, uh, and you're a mompreneur. Whoa! I don't know what you do or who you are. What do you mean? I, I do, your side hustle, uh, your 14 side hustles can't be the brand that you put out front. And I would actually say, uh, you know what would be helpful? For you to figure out what your gift is, get in purpose and get in calling, because you doing 14 things looks like confusion. And it looks like confusion to your customer and to your consumer as well. Let's get a couple of examples here to help. Steve Harvey, love Steve Harvey. I think Steve Harvey's in his 60s right now. And you wanna know what he's doing in his 60s? Dividing. You wanna know why he's able to divide in the latter years of his life? Cause he devoured in the first decades of his life. What do I mean by devoured? He became a world-class comedian. Let's say it together. Comedian, not jack of all trades, a comedian. He put all of his eggs in the comedian basket. Then he realized after decades of mastering comedy, if I can master comedy, I can host Miss America pageant. If I can, if I can do comedy, I can host uh, uh, Family Feud. If I can do comedy, I can have my own talk show. And now Steve Harvey is a motivational speaker. Now Steve Harvey is a, is a, a public communicator. Now Steve Harvey is a TV show host. Now Steve Harvey can what? Diversify because he first mastered one thing. Hey, stop being ADHD with your purpose calling and gifting. Can you just do one thing long enough to become world-class? Because you can never make top dollar until you're world-class. You can't demand Louis Vuitton money when, when, you, when you're not Louis. You're not giving Louis product. You're not giving Louis excellence. The reason that when you go on my website, and you try to book me for an event, my admin gonna hit you with a minimum honorarium requirement is because I have spent decades mastering a craft. I'm a professional. This is not my side gig. This ain't my hobby. It's my craft. I'm a professional. I knew I had turned this preaching gift into a skill the first time I did preaching camp, and I trained 50 other communicators on how to write sermons better and faster, and made a lot of money doing it. So, I'm telling you, as an entrepreneur, you can't be a successful entrepreneur and you do 18 things. Nobody wants a mechanic who is also a recycling expert on, no, 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 no. Do you work on cars? Or like, what do you do? Because I don't want the jack of all trades. No, I want someone who's a master at what they do. Then, once you master something, if sticking to one thing for 30 years doesn't sound appealing to you, then maybe ain't it, it's not the one thing for you. Maybe you haven't found your passion yet. Maybe it's not actually your gift. See, Jim Carrey could turn comedy into acting. Eddie Murphy could turn comedy into acting. Kevin Hart could turn comedy into acting. But they first had to master comedy. I'll give you another example. Bishop T.D. Jakes. Bishop T.D. Jakes, talk show, He's got movies, he's got a bunch, he's an author. He has divided in the evening. 
But Bishop Jakes is in his 60s. He wasn't dividing when he was 20. He was mastering his craft. The thing that got him world famous is preaching. Once you master your craft, then, then, I need everybody in the chat, then, once you master your craft, then, then you can add stuff to it. Once you learn how to get the chicken right, and everybody's coming to you for chicken, then you can say, how about we add some vegetables? But you can't distract yourself from the main thing you offer the world and think that you, people are going to pay you top dollar to be a jack of all trades. It don't work that way. I'll give you another example. Jackie Hill Perry mastered the art of poetry. She mastered the art of poetry. Then, I feel like a broken record, then, then she realized, well, poetry is really about words. And if I can do poetry, then I can probably preach, because that's words. And I can be an author, because that's words. And now I follow the Perrys on Instagram. They're into real estate and Airbnbs. You can diversify once you are an expert at something. Once you have mastered your craft, for most of us, you haven't even spent enough time doing the thing that God's gifted you to do. And you're already asking for more influence in more areas when you have not been faithful with little. So why would God make you ruler over much? You have to be faithful with little. You have to be faithful with poetry. You have to be faithful with preaching. You have to be faithful with comedy before you can add hosting Miss America, hosting Family Feud, before you can add real estate deals, before you can add books and TV shows, before you can add, you have to master. Before you can divide in the, in the evening, you have to first devour in the morning. This is foundational to understanding why some of us are bored. You're bored in photography, you tried that for nine months, and then, you know, you went over here to do a video, and then you did that for a couple months, and then you tried graphic design, and you're ADHD. Why would I pay you and you don't even pay attention to what you're saying you're called to do. Pay attention to your thing. And I don't feel insensitive saying ADHD because I'm diagnosed with ADHD. I haven't been on medication for years because Tia doesn't like how I act when I'm on medication for ADHD. And me, with my ADHD and all, I have picked a lane and stuck to it. I preach. That's what I do. And not, I will not veer off and get distracted doing other things until I master this. And when you master one thing, wealth will find you. Trust me. Trust me. We are living in an age where you can stream playing video games on Twitch and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you master the craft that is your hobby, no one has to be stuck at a job they don't like. Nobody. Nobody. I, I, yeah, no one has to be stuck in a job they don't actually like. There are people who make money selling pictures of their toes. So I'm sorry, you can do what you like to do, what's passionate for you, what's a gift for you, what's a calling for you, and what's in step with purpose, and still be wealthy. But please just be focused. Don't require more of my money than you require of your own focus. Not enough just to be hardworking. You need to put in the years of mastering your craft so that you can demand top dollar for your services. Excellence. I am preaching on excellence at the moment. All right. That was everything, I got through my notes. Here we go, next week, next week, we're gonna go through stewarding the treasures of life. Stewarding the treasures of life. What does it mean to be a good steward of the treasure that is life? You have to be a good steward 
of the treasure of life if you are going to break the stronghold of poverty and create unprecedented wealth for you, your life, and for everyone connected to you. Let's take up the offering. If you're watching this right now, I want you to sow. I don't just want you to sow into the local church ministry here at World Overcomers, but I want you to sow into your own business idea and your own business plan. Maybe you're watching this right now and you've got dreams of doing all kinds of things. And what I'm saying is unlocking uh, power in your mind to think in a different way. If that's you, can I tell you? The biblical thing to do right now is to sow because I have sown into you and your responsibility right now, the Christian thing to do is for you to sow back into my life, into the life of the person who is, uh, who is shepherding you at the moment. So I think that it would be, uh, it would behoove us. It would actually be offensive if I did not end this with an offering because quite honestly, I'm giving you the kind of information that could change your life. And I believe if you stick with me for all four weeks, I think business ideas are going to come out of your life. I think generational wealth is going to come out of your life. I think a passion to conquer is going to come out of your life. And so if you believe that, how about you sow? There are instructions on the screens letting you know exactly how you can give to the work that uh, Pastor Andy Thompson and the team here are building at World Overcomers. We got two more weeks together. Next week, we're really going to get into stewardship. Because if God can't trust you, he will never release unprecedented wealth into your life. And so we've got to get God to trust us. And we've got to learn how to steward things. Because a lot of us can make money. Not all of us can manage money. So we're going to talk about management and stewardship next week. I love you. Let me pray for the offering. God, I thank you for every gift, for every giver. I thank you for every single person who's live streaming this or maybe watching this later. God, I ask that you would bless them. God, I thank you that you want them to be a picture, a billboard of your exuberant, extravagant, glorious wealth. God, I ask that your uh, uh, fingerprint would be evident on their life. That like the Queen of Sheba was blown away at King Solomon and his wisdom and what he had built. God, we want non-believers, non-Christians to be blown away at what Christians have been able to do. And I ask for that kind of influence. Influence that prioritizes purpose. Influence that operates in gift. And influence that is obedient to the call of God. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say together, amen, amen, amen. Hey, if you're a part of the World Overcomers family, I want you right here in this building on Sunday. If you're not a part of the World Overcomers family, then I'll see you next Wednesday for week three of this sermon series on destroying the yoke of bondage that is poverty in our lives and releasing unprecedented wealth in your life and in your family's life. I'll see you either on Sunday or next week. Love you. Peace.